Hello, waterfowlers. This is the old timer coming to you once again from Memphis, Tennessee for episode eight. As uh, you probably remember, for episode seven, we did Hudson Bay Company. And uh, that had a lot to do with the French and uh, English people, England, contesting for the uh, countryside, control of it, especially for the furs. We didn't really cover too much of the French fur traders, but they were significant up in this area. So we're going to cover uh, this episode eight will be Lake Salvador, which is down in Louisiana coast, and it'll also cover the Cajuns, and we'll get into that in just a minute. As far as the uh, episode seven, uh, what was significant and didn't really get to cover too much was the French fur traders, and France controlled a good part of uh, Canada area, as did the uh, Eng England. But uh, the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, uh, which was a conflict between France and England, England ended up with a good part of the drainage district, or actually ended up with all the in drainage district of the Hudson Bay. And uh, France also gave up Newfoundland, so that was in the Treaty of Utrecht, 1713. So France is uh, significant in that part of the country, went down somewhat. But the French was a major contributors to the French fur trade up in that area and they were traveling down and up and down the Mississippi River and eventually got established in New Orleans also. Uh, Marquette and uh, Joliet uh, about 1698 or so traveling down the Mississippi River. And then, then the other big one as far as French, France and uh, England battling it out for the uh, above the uh, Canadian area and actually the good part of the north eastern part of the United States, actually from Virginia all the way up into Canada, and that was the French and Indian War, also known as the Seven Year War, and that occurred between 1756 and 1763. It was called the French and Indian War because all the Indian tribes up in that region that I just mentioned were, took the side of France or the side of England, but anyway, uh, England ended up winning the significant part of that uh, controlling all of the area, basically from Virginia over to the Mississippi River on up into to Canada, and actually got part of Newfoundland. And when that happened, the French, a lot of the French Acadians in that, the Acadians came from the, the north central part of France to Canada, and when this uh, French and Indian War got uh, terminated, a lot of the Arcadians uh, went back to the uh, to France, and some settled, uh, the Cadians settled in uh, Louisiana around New Orleans, and they're the ones that became the Cajuns, which we're going to cover today in Episode 7. So let's get started with Episode 7. Probably no section of North America in its primitive state was richer in bird life through the years than southern Louisiana. Encompassing 4 million acres, Louisiana's coastal marshes and swamps represented over 40% of the extreme wetlands in the contiguous United States. Millions of people rely directly or indirectly on the marshes for their livelihood and for protection against hurricanes and storms. This land was the heart of the unique Cajun culture. Located at the southern end of the Mississippi and Central Flyways, the low-lying coast where stretched great vistas of marsh and shallow lagoons gave food and shelter to 70% of the waterfowl of the United States and Canada, while geese and ducks of all kinds and species, shorebirds such as yellow legs, plovers, willets, snipes, and woodcocks migrated to these natural feeding grounds to escape the rigors and barren bleakness of northern winters. So if one were to ask the best state for duck hunting in the olden days of the United States, 
Wood would find it extremely difficult not to say it was Louisiana. For the migratory grain birds of the Mississippi Valley, Louisiana was the Grand Central Depot with terminal facilities that were unsurpassed. Her reedy shores, her vast marshes, her long coastlines, and abundance of food furnished what was not only a haven but a heaven for waterfowl and shorebirds. And this was especially true of the forest, marshes, swamps, and prairie areas for 60 miles and more inland from the Gulf of Mexico, essentially cut off from the rest of the world by its bayous and rivers. If asked the best area for duck hunting, one would say it would be somewhere on the coastal region of Louisiana, which was one vast waterfowling garden of Eden. Most would say it was a 60-mile stretch eastward through a series of canals bordered with marshes that spanned the sometimes overflowed prairies from bayou to bayou, from Terrebonne to La Fruche, La Fruche to Dels Alamans, and on through Lake Salvador into and up Bateria, again crossing the prairie, and at length leaving late Catawatchus through cypress swamps to the Mississippi River opposite New Orleans. Furthermore, Lake Salvador, 12 miles south of New Orleans in the southern part of St. Charles Parish, would most likely be mentioned as being the best spot of that 60-mile stretch. It had been a famous ducking ground ever since the beginning of European settlement in Louisiana. Lake Salvador was a shallow, marsh-bordered lake approximately 50 square miles in area. Here people lived in the basin near the end of the 18th century. On the north shore of Lake Salvador were numerous tents of duck hunters camps occupied during the hunting season. Duck hunters of French or Spanish descent from the settlements along the Mississippi and Bateria. The waterfowl reached New Orleans by going from Lake Salvador up into Lake Catawatch, then east by way of West Wego Canal to New Orleans, some 12 miles away. All these mentioned places produced boat or rail car loads of waterfowl each season, and here the silent piroes of the piroes of the Cajun hunters plied unmolested. The posting of one's ground was associated in the Cajun's mind with ideas of aristocracy, peculiar privilege to the rich and oppression to the poor. When seen, they heeded not such notices, claiming ownership of the countless flocks of geese and ducks that were wont to settle during the winter months at Lake Salvador, its ponds and marshes, these warnings or posted signs on paper were disregarded and ridiculed. Therefore, they continued their encroachment, for this locality had always been noted for its excellent waterfowling grounds. The Cajuns knew their country as no stranger could, and where waterfowl could be killed every day. For Perot, they didn't go to the nearest bass pro shop. Instead, they sharpened their axe and selected a nice cypress log. Traveling by Perot to the hunting grounds was described by an Englishman as floating in the water on a match. Camps built and used by family groups had been an important aspect of life around Lake Salvador during the late 18th to the earliest 20th centuries. Families left their homes to move to their waterfowling camps at Lake Salvador every year during the duck season. The family camps were small and organized around an extended family consisting of both houseboats and houses built on stilts. Camps were built to house additional labor during the heavy season of any particular resource, such as waterfowl, where families could live together near hard-to-reach resources. Camps were typically accessible only by boat, and even in the 20th century, many did not have electricity. The typical family hut or shack learned how to build from the Indians, 
contained only two rooms, one of which combined all the features of a kitchen, dining room, living room, and bedroom. The other room was used only as a bedroom. The whole family was crowded into these two rooms, which were small at best. Both beds and bunks were used for sleeping, with the children crowded three or four to a bed. A wood stove located outside was used for both cooking and heating. A houseboat was merely a hut on a small barge. Some camps consisted of one or two hunters and not a family. Their camp consisted of either a houseboat or a one-room palmetto cedar hut whose construction was learned from the Indians. Whether it was a family or only one or two hunters, the hut was located on the bank of a bayou or lake to make it easier to access a boat, which were used to procure supplies or haul their waterfowl to market, if not shipped by train or someone else's boat. Slips for the boat were dug into the bank and were tied to stakes driven into the ground. The family moved into their dwellings a week or two before the duck hunting season opened to get things in readiness. All took a hand in looking over their hunting paraphernalia, repairing anything if necessary. The ways of the father were the ways of the sons. The father and the sons set out decoys and made blinds, etc., etc. When the season started, each member of the family had an appointed task. When the day's waterfowl was brought to camp, the mother and girls gutted and hung the waterfowl to dry, with help from the boys when needed. While they were away from camp hunting, the women folks kept the camp clean and prepared the meals. This routine was followed every day of the hunting season, being interrupted only to celebrate Christmas or a rare trip back to buy supplies at the nearest store. To learn waterfowling lore, the younger boys went along with their father to learn the tricks of the trade, how to set out decoys, etc., etc. In camp, the girls helped their mother with household tasks and were taught the proper way of gutting and drying waterfowl and shorebirds, a most important lesson because a damaged bird would bring only a fraction of what it otherwise would be worth. When a boy became old enough, he was given a share of the season kill, and in time, usually between the ages of 18 and 21, he became full partners with his father and was allowed to hunt by himself. This partnership oftentimes endured for life, even after marriage. The girls, however, were not so treated. They received their food and clothing and a little, little spending money on occasion, nothing more. It was a man's world, especially in the Cajun world. Although camps were placed in relatively inaccessible areas, they were not totally isolated. During certain seasons, such as winter in the hunting area or summer in the fishing areas, several families would be found in the same vicinity, taking advantage of prime conditions. Camps were often placed for ease of communication on the same route, if not the same spots. For example, houseboats were commonly moored along a bayou emptying into Lake Salvador and camps built on slightly elevated shell beaches or mounds around the lakes or a bayou. If enough families were nearby, floating stores supplied these camps with a limited supply of groceries and brought their waterfowl, if not taken, to New Orleans. The family camps provided a point of continuity, a place where the skills were passed from one generation to the next and were a primary source of income for the family. The Cajuns were amphibious people inhabiting a world of swamps and bayous. They hunted alligators in the hot summer months beginning when the warm weather of spring had driven the waterfowl back north to the breeding grounds, or they fished when the heated waters of the lakes and lagoons compelled the fish to seek the more temperate currents of the open sea. They hunted gators for meat for their own consumption and gator hides for the game market, which were shipped to Paris. 
In the fall, when the waters were lowest, they fished, trapped, and continued alligator hunting while preparing to hunt waterfowl. In the earliest of days, waterfowl began arriving by the middle of October, sometimes even as early as September, depending on the weather, but for the most part were not fit for consumption, being too lean and poor from their long migration, so the market hunters waited until they had time to fatten up. When a Cajun market hunter in 1875 set out from his camp on Lake Salvador, he was equipped for a day of hunting with two muzzle-loading flintlocks, ammunition, and a sack with ample supplies of coffee, sugar, salt, pepper, potatoes, and biscuits. He paddled in a light sapper's parole, paddled through canals and bayous to dark cypress swamps, one of the principal duck grasses were the wild oats, or wild rice as it was known, 10 to 15 feet high, whose rich Farnaceous seeds furnished food for rails and waterfowl. After a successful morning hunt, they often took their guns and walked to an old burn in the marsh where it had been fired in the early fall for marsh rabbits. Here, rabbits were taken for food. During the waterfowl migration, the burnt marsh swarmed with snipes of a dozen varieties and nearly that many species of rails along with plovers, which also graced their table and went to the New Orleans market at the French quarters. At camp, nothing was more relished than Cajun duck gizzard jambulaya. Other meals consisted of rails cut up in pieces and sautéed and then stewed and served with a dense white sauce, while redfish court bouillon was considered greater. Nevertheless, if duck gizzard jambulaya be not the greatest dish a Cajun family ever tasted, then they would certainly have liked to have tried its superior. Others swore of their jambulaya, coots and boiled rice, highly seasoned. So they loved coots and boiled rice, jambalaya. No bread whatsoever was eaten, but occasionally toast roasted sweet potatoes was served. No matter how jambulaya was served, a pot of boiled coffee accompanied the meal. After dinner, the guns, all double-barrel muzzleloaders, were carefully cleaned and examined, the shot number seven only, and powder replenished, and dry black moss for powder wadding, and, ev and even green moss for the shot, were placed in convenient reach in the perros, and, each, and soon each one, with gun in front of him, and paddle in hand, was off for his evening hunt. The evening hunt consisted in cruising cautiously and silently around the borders of the open water, peeping into little nooks and around the little islands for water hens or coots, as they were called, but chiefly for ducks, and the banging of the guns told that execution was going on rapidly on all sides. All these Cajuns were capital shots and took their game on the wing, dropping their paddles, snatching up their guns, and dropping the game when flushed with astonishing expertise. Towards sunset, all concealed themselves in blinds made out in the open water by sticking into the shallow water long green reeds in such a manner as to leave the top four feet above the water in two rows, the length of a canoe with one end closed and a space left between just wide enough to omit a parole. Into one of these blinds, the hunter with a duck call stationed himself and awaited the flight of the ducks as they poured into the lake towards nightfall from the rice fields. From an hour before sunset until after dark, the flashes and booms from the treacherous blinds told the destruction that was going on. When it was too dark to shoot with accuracy, the hunters headed their perros towards camp, with 15 to 30 each of ducks and water hens, but chiefly ducks. Upon arrival at camp, one of the market hunters made the fire and put on three pots of water, one to scald what waterfowl they designed to eat, one for coffee, and one for invariable rice and water hens. The others placed the ducks in a pile. One picked up a duck, turned its belly up, pulled back the wings, plucked at a single stroke a large handful of feathers from the offside below the wing, 
and placed the feathers into a bag hung before, hung before him. He snatched another bunch from off the other side, then two from the lower part of the belly, leaving a bare place about the size of one's palm. He then tossed a duck to another man who was sitting on the floor. He carefully and cautiously opened the belly with a small, narrow-bladed knife, very sharp, and then threw the duck to a third man who drew out the entrails with a quick jerk with one hand and pulled out with a grasp of liver, gizzard, and heart, throwing them into a bucket to be dressed and eaten in camp. Another took the duck, pressed into the cavity a ball of green moss, which he rubbed around, withdrew, and threw away, putting in as many as three or four of these moss balls until the bird was clean and dry inside. The ducks were then sorted, tied in pairs, and hung up by the neck until packed to be sent off. No less than 16 varieties of ducks were known to these hunters. The canvas back and the redheads were the best and brought the most money. The black model duck was next, and the French duck or mallard was third. The camp at night presented an interesting picture. When the ducks were disposed of, each one took a water hen and plucked off the feathers as clean as possible. The birds were then dipped into scalding water and rolled in hot ashes where it was rubbed down white and clean. The entrails were then taken out. It was washed and a small stick stuck about two feet long was stuck into its mouth passing under and along the skin of its neck and out through the rear of the body onions of garlic and salt and pepper were then pressed into it and the stick was stuck into the ground in front of the fire at such an angle as to make the bird hang over the fire in an hour by occasional turning it was roasted to a turn when the hunter stuck the stick in the ground between his legs and pulled off wings and legs and finally the breast and body at his leisure and it was certainly as rich a feast as one would wish to eat then the came then came jambalaya and coffee when pipes songs and tall tales and acadian french made the fireside fireside merry for a couple of hours by nine o'clock all was quiet Four o'clock in the morning awakened the camp to a cup of strong coffee, and then before day all were on their way to their blinds where they put out their decoys. By early dawn, the cannonading from 20 hunters on the lake sounded like a battle. The day's hunt procured anywhere from 60 to 100 ducks per gunner. They lived in rude, rude shanties mentioned, or the huts as they recall, with walls made of boards, split cypress pickets, and some cane. The roofs consisted of hatched palmetto fawns scavenged from land clearing. Windows with openings, sometimes covered with oilcloth or paper, and had wooden shutters for protection. The doors were planked wood and floors were packed dirt. Other huts' walls and roofs were made from palmetto, however. Huts were sited on the banks and bordering Native American shell mounds of Lake Salvador, Bayous des Lemans, St. Denis, Dupont, and Barataria, and numerous other sluggish tidal streams and lakes in the great wilderness Louisiana. The region in which they resided was uninviting to, to more civilized communities. Here they remained, as they had been for ages, unmolested by inroads of civilization, and an undisputed possession of their moss-draped cypress swamps, their lonely shell mounds and live oak groves, their desolate sea marsh, and their lakes and lagoons. Waterfowling on Lake Salvador goes back to the Native Americans. Following two centuries of sporadic visit by European explorers, settlements began in the early 18th century with the arrival of French colonists then later the spanish during the late colonial period lake salvador supported hunters trappers and fishermen as mentioned in the late 18th century on the northern short shore of lake salvador there were spanish and french hunters camps with numerous tents but no huts at that time when the first northerner set in 
Cajun market hunters turned to their lighter perros called by the natives a running perot and turned to market hunting feathered game on land they owned not by deed but by natural heritage the numberless mallards the french duck as the natives called it black ducks pintails gray ducks or gadwall teals sometimes the canvasback and redhead and the coots or water hen it was the better known the rails and the snipes they all hunted st charles parish had many geographical advantages and was partially bounded on different sides by three lakes of considerable size namely lake pontchartrain lake des lamans and lake salvador the last two being connected by bayou des lamans the distance by boat from lake salvador to new orleans as i mentioned was about twelve miles by water by way of lakes bayous rivers and canals at all three lakes the market hunters did very well and during the winter months a large number of ducks were shipped to new orleans at each lake were ten or twelve camps each containing four to six hunters that formed a partnership hunting from october to march and maintaining a constant camp during the whole fall and winter for the purpose of hunting for the market they were all creoles or acadians the latter came to Louisiana to become the Cajuns, people proud of their French roots that adapted to new land and a new life. Originally, as I mentioned, they came from the west central part of France to settle in French Canada, Canada, Canada part of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island, dating back to 1764. They sent their game every day to New Orleans, where their salesmen in New Orleans kept an account current for the hunting season with a recognized head of the partnerships of the Cajun families doing the market hunting. Bayou des Alamans was a beautiful stream rising near Donaldsonville and emptying into Lake Salvador, where it was lost in the numerous bays and outlets extending to the Gulf of Mexico. Lake Salvador was a magnificent body of water north of Lockport and was the entrance to one of the most charming bodies of lakes that led into the Gulf at Grand Pass that could be found on the globe. Lake Alamines was a large body of water between Lafourche and St. James. These three lakes were supplied with fish and crabs at all season, and during the hunting season was placed favorite resting places for the immense flocks of waterfowl that came down from the colding climes of the north. In 1900, the Cajuns family on Lake Salvador were invaded by professional white market hunters. One particular spot on Lake Salvador consisted of 425 acres along a four-mile shore of the lake, which had a famous duck pond on it, plus some additional smaller ponds and much swampland. A group of the white market hunters leased this acreage for 10 years from 1906 to 1915 and had made a fortune, clearing many thousand dollars during that time. Ten years of shooting, however, did not diminish the supply. During four months in 1915, the white market hunters who rented the grounds killed a multitude of ducks for one week, shooting from daylight until dark using no bait, that killed and shipped 40,000 ducks from this particular spot to the French market in New Orleans. They brought from 25 cents to 50 cents a pair wholesale, with the mallards bringing 50 cents, while Till brought 25%. They had two run boats, which were constantly loaded with ducks to capacity, and they made a fortune. 1915 would be the last season of the white market hunters at Lake Salvador, for the local Cajuns ran them off. The season of 1916 was a good one for the Cajun families on the lake as they found it necessary to double up on their efforts to kill more waterfowl during that waterfowl season 
needing money to, on which to live. The surplus kill had the sanction of the State Game Commission, as the commission stated that it was needed to relieve distress among the four Cajun families who were victims of the poor fishing season the preceding summer. After the Civil War, the French market was perhaps unsurpassed by that of any other city in the world. With its heyday being in the late 19th century, it received a constant supply of venison, bison, bears, pigeons, woodcocks, rails, quail, fairy chickens, plovers, snipes, squirrels, rabbits, coons, turkeys, cranes, geese, and ducks. Most of this game reached the populace, the principal hotels, restaurants, bars, and saloons via the French market to gratify the hungry stomachs of an immense army of gourmands who did not partake hog and hominy exclusively. The market hunters at Lake Salvador had two latine rigged luggers, which were constantly loaded to capacity with waterfowl during the four-month season. Taken to Des Alamans, the waterfowl, principally ducks, were shipped sometimes by the Southern Pacific Railroad in great, great quantities to New Orleans. Also, large quantities were also shipped by the water route by the steamer St. Charles. According to those in the know, there was no other place in Louisiana that was as good a market hunting preserve as Lake Sourdough, for, for it was very near the game markets of New Orleans and had an immense, unlimited supply of birds. Being so close, ice was not needed. Thus, a large sugar barrel held 40 pairs of mallards or 40 pairs of teal. In addition, baiting was not necessary, for the fodder grew wild in great abundance. And before the universal use of breech loaders and the invention of nitro powders, it was not unusual to see acres and acres of what ducks on the lake. Things began to change out after oil prospectors discovered how to drill in Louisiana wetlands in the 1920s. So they dredged their way through enormous marshes and created a vast network of canals to get to their wells. Over time, the canals became heavily trafficked thoroughfares, linking bayous and bays across the region, and 70% of South Louisiana's land became privately owned, thus changing the environment for so many Cajuns. These early hunting camps were the forerunners of later hunting camps, such as Fred Dudley's and others, such as Tropical Garden Gun Club, La Butte, Red Camp, Hard Times Camp, and others, where Cajuns' culture is maintained and was maintained in the lives of new generations of Cajun duck hunters. As the 20th century progressed, each year coastal Louisiana lost its wetlands at an increasing rate, reaching about 40 square miles per year in the 1970s. This represented 80% of all coastal wetlands lost in the United States and constituted an economic cost of about $1.5 billion per year. Recently, the rate of wetlands loss has slowed somewhat. The Cajuns of Louisiana today are renowned for their music, their food, and their ability to hold on to their tradition while making the most of the present. And one of their most famous traditions is that of waterfowling, and it continues to this day. The old saying, if it walks, crawls, swims, or flies, we kill it, and it ends up in the Cajun pot. That ends Episode 8, Lake Salvador and the Cajun. As most of my listeners know, and if you're new to the podcast, you know that I'm a storyteller. This is not an interview podcast. So each episode will be a uh, storytelling event of the old timers where their stories are drawn from life while being a duck hunter. And I think you'll find that their stories will fascinate you and resonate within you. 
Hopefully there will be something of the grand philosophy of life attained only by listening to the stories of the old-timers, for they saw America when it was a waterfowling paradise, when its environment was plentifully supplied with waterfowl and it abounded with opportunity to duck So don't miss an episode as I come to you every Tuesday with a different topics on waterfowling of the old-timers. They'll give us our treasures and their hidden riches of their history. And all, by all means, as I say, tune in every Tuesday for more episodes that will give you a deeper understanding of the natural war world as told by the generations of old-time duck hunters that have sadly passed away. My next episode, episode 9, will be shooting stands, and that will be goose hunting uh, along the shores of Cape Cod Bay and ponds across the famous Massachusetts goose and duck stands. These stands varied in complexity from the shooting blind or brush house, which was made of reed and branches, with look, which looked like a low cluster of trees and bushes, with a few wooden decoys and perhaps a couple of live ones placed out within about 20 yards of the pond to the more elaborate permanent stands with no roof overhead. So then episode 9 will be the shooting stands, which is goose hunting around in Massachusetts, and if you give a chance, visit my website, waterfowling.net. And while there, visit my blog, which has a multitude of old stories dealing with the old times. You'll also see this transcript of this episode 8, as in the previous 1 through 7 episodes, where you can go there on my website under the blog and read the transcription of this story. In closing, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in, and I hope you return and please rate and review my podcast. So I tune out for episode eight and look forward to greeting you next Tuesday. And may God bless.